Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Who has influenced you, and how are you passing it on? That's a question that goes to the heart of learning and mentoring. In this edition of Radio Curious, we visit with Eric Liu, author of Guiding Lights, The People Who Lead Us Toward Our Purpose in Life, a book about mindful mentoring. I spoke with Eric Liu from his home in Seattle, Washington in February 2005 and asked him to describe his experiences with learning and mentorship. Well, you know, this book that I've written, Guiding Lights, is all about life-changing mentors and teachers from all different walks, uh, everything from a Hollywood acting coach to a Marine Corps drill instructor, a master clown, an inner-city entrepreneur, you name it, from all around the country. And the thing that um, connected all of them, I spent about two and a half years, um, the better part of which I was traveling around the country finding uh, folks like these uh, and going to all kinds of diverse settings and domains and workplaces. And I would ask them all, no matter who they were and what their background was, the same two questions. I would ask them, who's influenced you and how are you passing it on? And, you know, when you ask just about anybody those two questions, it doesn't matter how long you've known them, uh, you get very quickly to the heart of who they are. And you are, first of all, I think, giving them an invitation to reflect on where they sit in the world, how they uh, fit into the weave of uh, relationship and obligation that, uh, uh, that surrounds all of us. Uh, and once you've given them that invitation, you really... Um, uh, bring them into a deeper kind of conversation. And so I think, you know, what they begin to realize is that, as your question suggests, learning and teaching, uh, being the apprentice, being the master, they're completely intertwined, and that every one of us in every social role we play um, is constantly a teacher and a mentor. We are always influencing those around us, uh, but at the same time, every one of us is always getting shaped by somebody else. What are some of the... Um circumstances that you found that you didn't expect that you would find? Some of the stories that were told to you? Well, you know, some of the things were, I, I encountered some remarkable people, and the stories that I tell in the book are stories of uh, relationship and transformation. I, I, as, I, as I alluded to earlier, I probably spent time with about 300 different uh, uh, teachers and mentors of different kinds, and uh, um, what enabled me to narrow down the number, I only write about uh, 15 of them or so in Guiding Lights, <clears throat> what enabled me to narrow the number down was to use the prism and the filter of relationship. I wasn't just looking for people who were extremely skilled in the moment, had great technique as teachers, uh, could perform a really uh, upending uh, piece of uh, educational jujitsu. You know, I was looking for people who were engaged in deeper uh, relationships with people, not always successful relationships, but where there was an effort to try to make a connection on a deeper level. And when you look through that lens, you just find some remarkable things. You know, there's a story in the book that I often tell uh, about a guy named Tom Brown. And Tom Brown is an inner-city entrepreneur in southeast uh, Washington, D.C. And, uh, you know, as I tell the story, he is a serially failed entrepreneur. He's just time and again and again, his, his little business ventures and ideas have just cratered and collapsed uh, to the point where he finds himself one day standing on the 14th Street Bridge in Washington, D.C., and he's just ready to end it all, uh, ready to jump. And uh, that day, he actually gets pulled off the bridge. The cops show up, and actually the TV cameras come. It becomes this big to-do. And he 
he gets this unwanted, unasked-for second act to his life. And as he's trying to figure out what to do with this second act, somebody he knows suggests to him, hey, Tom, uh, you know, the, the local high school here, Anacostia High School, is looking for somebody to teach this new course on entrepreneurship. And uh, Tom thinks to himself, well, I don't know a whole lot about running a successful business, but I do know about starting them. And so he says, what the heck, I'll, I'll go and do this. And he starts to teach this class. And what, un- what unfolds from that point on is a very, in a sense, surprising thing. He ends up uh, meeting a child in that class uh, named Quincy Pratt. Uh, and, you know, Quincy is, he's, he's 15, he's still just a boy. But at 15, Quincy has already experienced more trial and trauma um, than most of us would want, I think, in a lifetime. He's just, his own family's been completely ravaged by violence and drugs. He's bounced from foster home to foster home. And uh, at the time Tom Brown meets him, he's been living in court-approved uh, independent living uh, for, for a while. And so the good news about Quincy Pratt when they meet is that the kid is, is a survivor. He has made it this far. But the bad news about it, about uh, Quincy, is that he is almost pathologically self-reliant. He just counts on nobody. He trusts nobody. He asks nobody for help. And so Tom Brown, when he is trying to uh, mentor and teach Quincy Pratt, you know, on one level he knows they've got to talk about business. And uh, the thing that Quincy's interested in is starting a laundromat there in southeast D.C. And so on one level, Tom Brown has to talk to him about, okay, well, if you want to start a laundromat, um, who are you going to ask for help on leasing the right kind of equipment? Who's going to advise you on the real estate? Who are you going to talk to about setting the right price points for your services? And who are you going to enroll and enlist in the work of just uh, helping spread the word about this venture? And so on one level, on the surface, this curriculum is about the nuts and bolts of starting a small business. But of course, right beneath that surface, what Tom Brown is really teaching Quincy Pratt is, in a sense, how to be a human being again, how to trust people again, how to ask people for help, how to put yourself in situations where you have to count on somebody else for something that's vital to you, even though every fiber of your uh, being and every aspect of your experience says that they're probably going to let you down. And over time, there's a double transformation. Not only does Quincy, in fact, learn the nuts and bolts of business, but he also learns to, as I say, become woven again into that web of relationship and obligation that holds this all together. And that transformation alone would be, I think, story enough. But this is the surprising part, Barry, to your question. You know, what Tom Brown realizes uh, as Quincy finds his way, and by the end of the story, Quincy's actually already gone off to, he's made it out of Anacostia, he's gone off to uh, college uh, in North Carolina, and Tom Brown's reflecting on the fact that he has, by his teaching, by his friendship, by his, in a sense, surrogate uh, parenting, um, saved Quincy Pratt. But the other thing that Tom realizes upon looking at it is that by saving Quincy Pratt, he has saved himself. And that was something that Tom didn't expect. The idea that by teaching this other child, teaching this person, he was going to lead himself, Tom Brown would, to a sense of purpose and calling and meaning in his life. And, uh, uh, and I think I, I tell that story for a few reasons. One is just that, that it's... Um, the transformation is both ways, and that when you enter into that kind of relationship as the mentor or as the master, you are just as likely to be transformed as much as, if not more than, the person you are uh, you, you are teaching.
I think there's also an interesting aspect um, in that story, and that's uh, the failures of Tom Brown that uh, almost led him to take his own life. He was still able to uh, use those to teach someone how not to do it that way. Barry, that is a, a really, um, that's a very insightful point, and I think it's something that is true not only in Tom Brown's story, but in just about every story in the book, all these different teachers, one of the things that uh, I think marks them all is that they is how they use failure, what they do with failure, um, and how they convert it into the material for uh, future experience and learning. You know, and that's that's as true of Brian Price, who's the uh, pitching coach for the Seattle Mariners. And I tell the story about a essentially a failed relationship that he has with one of his pitchers named Freddie Garcia, who ultimately who who was the most talented guy on the Mariners staff, but because Brian couldn't ever quite get in his head and stabilize him and, and get him to a level of consistent uh, performance, uh, the team ultimately traded Freddie Garcia away, which, uh, you know, on one level is a colossal coaching failure, that the most talented, promising person on your staff ends up getting given away to another team because the coach couldn't bring out the talent. Uh, and I tell that story partly to show that even the greats um, do fail, and Brian Price was pitching coach of the year a couple of years ago. I mean, he's very highly esteemed in his business. Uh, that even even those who are great in their in their craft do fail and falter, not only in baseball but of course in life. But the other reason I tell that is to your point, Barry. It's it's what's interesting about it is what Brian Price does with that, because all during the rest of the off season and the following season, he is working it over. He's trying to think through what he could have done differently. He's unpacking that relationship, and and it's actually prompting him to reflect uh, in a more clear-eyed way on things that he's done earlier in his own coaching career and things he could have done differently in other relationships. And he begins to really try to take that and plow it into the next year's crop of, uh, of pitchers who he's going to have to cultivate. Eric Liu, author of Guiding Lights, The People Who Lead Us Toward Our Purpose in Life. As you express in your book, you talk about the, the fact that we all wake up each day and go to bed each day with a greater and greater breadth of experience, a full toolkit, as you describe it. And, and you suggest that that be presented in an authentic way. I'd like you to tie those two together, particularly some suggestions or tools, if you will, for people to identify what tools or skills they have in their toolkit. When we were speaking earlier, Barry, about um, the two questions that I would ask anybody I encountered in the course of researching this book, who's influenced you and how do you pass it on? I, I, I will keep on returning to those two questions because, in a sense, I don't think it has to get a whole lot more complicated than that. Those two questions are very powerful avenues into um, not only your sense of another person, but that other person's sense of herself or himself. Uh, if you really stop and just hit pause on the craziness of your everyday life, the running commentary that's going on in the back of your mind about whatever errands you got to run or whatever, if you just hit pause for a moment and take a serious inventory of who has influenced you for good and for ill and how you're passing it on, you will see in a much clearer light the ways in which you are part of this chain of mentorship and chain of obligation. And so I think it really does begin with that. And once you see that, you begin to take inventory not only of, okay, this person, that person, this experience, that experience, but you ask yourself, how did this person, how did this parent or this pastor or this boss or this uh, sports coach shape me? What, what was it exactly that they gave me? Uh, 
Do they give me uh, a sense of possibility? Do they give me a sense of resiliency in the face of failure? Do they give me a determination to be exactly not like them? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of things that they can bestow onto you. And when you take that kind of inventory, you suddenly realize, my goodness, my own toolkit as a mentor, as a teacher, as somebody moving in this world, in every role, whether it's at work or at home as a parent or at play, whatever it may be, you suddenly realize you yourself have a much more fully stocked toolkit than you realized because you yourself have been given those tools, those values, those ways of being uh, by everybody you've encountered. Barry, you know, one of the things that drove me to uh, do this book was this yearning that I felt at a certain point to have a mentor of my own. Uh, I was just re- wishing that uh, somebody would, would come along and show me the way and take me under their wing. And It's probably fair to say that you've had many mentors, some of whom you didn't realize till you determined that they in fact were. Well, and some of which I didn't realize till I set out on this book, because one of the lessons of doing this book was that there wasn't going to be the one great mentor for me. Uh, and I think for most of us, that's true. Very few of us end up having a single saving figure who just takes us under their wing. What most of us end up having to do is cobble together a composite mentor. That's the toolbox concept. That's the toolbox. It's a little bit of you, it's a little bit of that person, a little bit of this experience, and it's a constantly organically evolving composite that's in your head and in your heart. And the key, I think, is just to be mindful of that. That mentor in your head is always there, but most of the time, most of us are not paying much attention to it, and we're not thinking about it in those terms. And a lot of why I wrote this book was just to restore all of us to a greater sense of mindfulness and attention to the ways in which we already have that power and already have those tools. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Eric Liu, the author of Guiding Lights, the people who lead us toward our purpose in life. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Eric, who influenced you? Well, it is true that there's a long roster of people who I would point to as uh, as as mentors and influences, but I think you know, at the top of all the rosters and all the lists, uh, has to be my mother, and uh, and my mother in very different ways at very different uh, phases of my life, um, from childhood on through, you know, my twenty-second uh, year. That was uh, one kind of, um, you know, what you would expect a mother to be to a son uh, as a mentor, and she had a lot of uh, ideas about uh, ways to carry myself and um, how to move in the world and how to. Uh, retain what she would call a sense of basic decency uh, and integrity. But when I was 22, my father died. And from that point on, over the last 14 years, the nature of the relationship between my mother and me has changed very fundamentally. And as years have gone by, you know, on one level, on the surface, it might seem like increasingly I'm mentoring her because she's getting older and, uh, you know, facing a lot of those questions and issues. And even at work, until she retired recently, uh, I was becoming more and more of, uh, in a sense, a workplace coach for her, helping her with, uh, you know, emails or with a PowerPoint or how to navigate her bureaucracy of her company. And as time would go on and I became more experienced and older, um, I found myself increasingly in that position where I thought I was being the mentor. And sometimes I would think, boy, you know, that's not fair. Who's looking out for me? (laughs) And it wasn't really, Barry, until I sat down to write about this and write about my mother uh, for the book Guiding Lights, uh, that I began to see a different level of this, that I began to see that while on the surface it appeared that I was becoming her mentor, uh, in fact, 
well beneath that surface, the same patterns and dynamics were holding, which is she was teaching me something still. Because it took a great deal of courage. It has taken a great deal of courage on my mother's part to yield. She's a proud first-generation immigrant mother, widow, and not everybody in her situation would yield and let their son teach them, put themselves in a position where they have to be reliant upon uh, their, their own child in a way. And I realized that by yielding and by letting me into that position, she was teaching me still. She's been teaching me about how to show compassion. She's been teaching me about patience. She's been teaching me about how to handle her and how to explain things to her or any human being in a way that really relates to them and sticks to them. And as I've gone along, she's always given me feedback about how I'm coaching her. And I suddenly realized that it may seem like she's um, dependent upon me at this phase, but in fact, she's shaping me as much as, if not more than, ever before. Uh, and you know, I think that's one of the um, wonderful realizations that's come out of this book. And it goes back to your earlier point, Barry, about how you know the role of teacher and the role of learner, uh, the role of mentor and mentee, are are forever intertwined. Eric Liu, I'd like to broaden this a little bit and reflect on your experience when you worked with President Bill Clinton and you became a deputy domestic policy advisor. Put yourself back in that position. What would be some advice now that you would give on our domestic policy, some observations on the direction it's taking and um, the turns that you feel it should take? Well, um my, my, I served um, under President Clinton uh, two times. Uh, in the first term of his, of his presidency, I was a speechwriter for him, doing foreign policy speechwriting mainly. Uh, and, then, uh, and then I went off to school and began to write uh, and do other uh, book projects. And then I came back at the very end of the second term uh, in the role that you've described, which was I was his deputy domestic policy advisor. And uh, um, you know, those two experiences were, in a sense, wonderful bookends of a of an education for me. Um, not only about politics, but about how to move in the world and uh, how uh, how to make change in the world. And um, you know, my my observations about domestic policy and politics today um, are going to be colored by the fact that you know I'm I'm a Democrat. I don't pretend to be otherwise, and uh, uh, and I'm I'm. Uh, uh, I've got that particular point of view. I don't want to, on air right now, go bashing the Bush administration. I'll, I'll say I'll say a couple of things. I mean, I think that, you know, the Bush, in the first term, so much of the Bush administration's energy um, and focus was on both the war on terror and uh, you know the the war that they chose to undertake in Iraq, uh, and that has sucked up not only a lot of their energy, but a lot of, I think, the country's attention. And I would say in the first term, outside of a couple of initiatives, domestic policy um, sort of languished. Uh, it certainly, there wasn't a, there wasn't nearly as coherent a sense of game plan uh, in domestic policy uh, as there was in foreign policy. I'm not saying you have to agree with the game plan, but one can, it's pretty hard to argue that uh, um, Bush didn't have an agenda in, in foreign policy. Um, I, I think now in the second term, uh, what's unfolding with uh, his proposals, his very radical proposals for um, redoing Social Security and uh, um, and really, in a sense, reconceiving um, the social contract uh, that has undergirded that program and a lot of uh, um, government programs over the last uh, 
you know, half century or more, um, now we're getting to a much clearer sense of what his uh, agenda is at home. Uh, and uh, I think, uh, you know, the fact that there is resistance even among those in his own party um, uh, testifies to the fact, to two things. I mean, number one, uh, President Bush is going to have a real uphill climb. Uh, but number two, he's not afraid of uphill climbs. And uh, again, like him or not, you have to give him some credit for uh, being willing and able to uh, uh, to say that's the mountain that I want to climb. Uh, I think that uh, you know his proposals for Social Security are are, are extremely uh, ill-advised and uh, um, in a sense distract us from the true fundamental uh, problems of that program. There's nothing about uh, privatizing Social Security in the way that he's proposing and giving uh, younger workers uh, more of an opportunity to invest in private uh, securities. There's nothing about that that in itself is going to save Social Security, Uh, and yet there's a lot of uh, um, that vibe being created by the way he's selling uh, his agenda. So uh, I think it's going to be an interesting time because the stakes now are not just about um, moving around the pieces on the surface here, but the stakes are, as I alluded to a moment ago, uh, about redefining, in a sense, the social contract and asking ourselves in a very fundamental way in, in domestic politics right now, what does the state owe the individual? What do we owe each other as a community? Um, you know, Social Security was meant to be not just a safety net, but a commitment by one to be there for all. And uh, he's proposing a, a, you know, a scheme in which it's a commitment by one to look out for one. And uh, he's got a faith that when you do that, everything works out okay in the end. And uh, I think we we need to have a debate on that. It sounds like you disagree with what the mentor president is saying. (laughs) And obviously he's a mentor to many people in the country, if not in the world. How do you structure that disagreement with a mentor, whether he's perceived as a mentor or not? That is a wonderful question, you know, because... uh, um, he, I'm sure President Bush is a mentor to many uh, around him and in, in his own staff. Uh, and he's certainly, beyond that, a teacher to many others. Every political leader, everybody in a, public, in, in, a, in a prominent role in public life is, whether or not they mean to be and whether or not they're signing up to be, is a teacher. A president uh, probably more than anybody else on the planet. Again, we saw this in the context of the war that he chose to undertake in Iraq. Uh, he tried to teach the country about what he thought were the stakes and what he claimed to be the threats, uh, and he painted a certain picture. Um, he's going to do the same right now on Social Security. And I think it's a very important thing to realize that when we talk about mentoring and teaching in every role, uh, it's not just in one-on-one relationships, but it's particularly when you talk about pop culture or politics or organized religion, spiritual life, you're often talking about mass teaching and influence upon large publics. And, uh, you know, President Bush, um, he's got some strengths and he's got some weaknesses as a teacher. Uh, I'll say that his strengths, one of his strengths is that he knows who he is and he knows where he stands. And the things that he tries to persuade the public on are not about the nuts and bolts of a particular policy. They're not about the mechanics. He goes to a deeper level, which actually resonates with what you and I have been talking about, which resonates with the subtitle of my book, Guiding Lights, which is he goes to the level of purpose. He's asking us, what are we here for? Why is America in the world? And his answer is to promote liberty. And he's asking, what are we here for in this country, you know, in in domestic politics? What are we doing? And his answer is more opportunity and ownership. Uh, And he's able to tell a story that flows from 
this fundamental sense of purpose. That's one of his strengths as a as a leader and as a teacher. Um, one of his critical weaknesses, though, as both a leader and a teacher, is his complete incuriosity and his inability to do sincere listening. Uh, and you know, in my book Guiding Lights, the very first section of story, the very first ch- uh, chapter. Um, is all about this principle that I call receive before you transmit, that what marks great life-changing teachers and what separates them from the merely good ones is the ability not to communicate and orate and perform and persuade somebody of your point of view, but actually quite the opposite. It's the ability to do a deep, full-body kind of listening and to really tune into where people are and to understand and read the makeup and the motivation uh, and the life experiences that have shaped your particular uh, apprentice or learner or child or employee uh, or whatever it may be. And only after you've tuned into that very specific individual frequency do you then try to transmit whatever it is you're trying to transmit. It's not just a blind following and tuning into, okay, wherever this guy is, that's where I'm going to go. Because you do have to have something, a point of view that you want to impart. But the point of the idea of receive before you transmit as a principle for great teaching is that you don't try to impart a, a darn thing until you've gotten a fix on where that person is. And that's a principle that uh, George W. Bush, as, as a president, uh, completely disregards. Um, his, his concept of what it means to lead, his concept of what it means to teach, is to be cocksure, to know yourself, and to put your idea out there and, and believe that people will eventually come around. Uh, and I don't think that's, in the long term, a sustainable or an effective way to move a public. Eric Liu, author of Guiding Lights, The People Who Lead Us Towards Our Purpose in Life. Thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? You know, interestingly, it's funny that we've been talking a little bit about um, leadership in public life and how mentoring and teaching flow into into that, because I've been spending a lot of time of late um, doing two things. I've been reading uh, Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men, which you might be surprised for all my time in politics, uh, I'd never read. Um, so I've only been reading it for the first time. Uh, and while I've been doing that, I've been doing something else in the evenings, which is I've been watching this television show on HBO called Deadwood. And if you've heard of Deadwood, it's a Western, kind of a, a no-holds-barred, the, the short concept is kind of Sopranos meets the Wild West. It's a very unvarnished view um, of a uh, gold rush town in in the Black Hills in the late 1800s. And what connects these two things is that Deadwood was created by and is written by a fellow named David Milch. David Milch was for many years an apprentice to and was completely formed in his writing abilities, in his values, in his sense of the world, I think, by Robert Penn Warren. Uh, And so it's been wonderful to be simultaneously reading the seminal text of Robert Penn Warren uh, and then watching and listening to uh, the work of David Milch, and to be, uh, in a sense, in the middle there, feeling all those vibes of mentorship and relationship bouncing across from one work to the other, from one generation to the other. And I can only guess at what specifically uh, has shaped Milch uh, from uh, Robert Penn Warren's work, but you can just feel all sorts of uh, resonant connections there. Eric Liu, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you so much for having me, Barry. Eric Liu is the author of Guiding Lights, the people who lead us toward our purpose in life. The books he recommends are All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren 
and The Writings of David Milch. Eric Liu's website is www.ericliu.com. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. 